was in middle school in grade eight, I was really fascinated by technology, but it always felt something that was really distant to me that I couldn't, you know, get my hands on. And I think, like, you know, a part of it is partially the whole gender gap with technology and STEM. Even as kids, I think, you know, generations ago, we would think that STEM and technology was something that only guys could do. But I think even this generation, stereotypes are still present. When I was in grade eight, I led my robotics team. It was a team of all boys. And I was, you know, the captain of my team. I was the girl lead. And one of the boys actually came up to me and he said to me, he's like, Alicia, why are you even, you know, pursuing, or why are you even trying to code? Why are you trying to learn programming when all you're ever going to be is a housewife? And that to me was something really new to me because I didn't expect to hear that. After that, I was kind of heartbroken for a couple of days. But after that, I told myself that I wanted to challenge that. And I wanted to, you know, take a stand for that. And I wanted to prove it to people that, you know, girls can do more than just their baking club and the regular cooking club at school. They can do so much more. And from there onwards, I wanted to actually use technology. I wanted to leverage it. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. According to a report by the American Census, Despite making up nearly half of the United States workforce, women are still vastly underrepresented in the science, technology, engineering, and math workforce. Women have made gains from 8% of STEM workers in 1970 to 27% in 2019, but men still dominate the field. Men make up 52% of all workers in the United States, but 73% of all STEM workers. Given the technological advancements with things like AI, robotics, nanotechnology, and the Internet of Things, STEM occupations are expected to increase over the next 10 years. However, the gender gap in STEM still persists. According to the nonprofit consulting firm Catalyst, the gap in STEM begins in education and is fueled by gender stereotypes and expectations regarding women's work. Their research finds that despite similar achievement scores among children of all genders in STEM subjects, men are overwhelmingly the majority of students studying STEM fields in higher education. The few women who begin careers in STEM face male-dominated workplaces with high rates of discrimination. The isolation, hostile working conditions, and persistent gender pay gap are all contributing factors as to why women leave STEM careers at disproportionately higher rates than men, particularly among those who are working parents. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from Alicia Aurora, a 14-year-old young woman who is on a mission to leverage exponential technology to solve some of the world's largest problems. Alicia is an advocate and activator for mental health and is currently researching at MIT's AI lab to diagnose and prevent suicide with machine learning. Alicia represents the future of STEM. And so today, in this inspiring episode, Alicia will share her work, ambitions and experiences working in STEM. According to a 2018 Pew Research report, there are wide gaps between men and women working in STEM when it comes to perceptions of fair treatment and discrimination at work. 
The research found that a woman working in STEM is much more likely than her male colleague to report that she's suffered workplace gender discrimination. She's also more likely to regard discrimination as a key reason why there are not more women working in STEM. Those women who felt their gender had hampered their success in STEM pointed to concerns like pay gaps and unequal treatment from their co-workers stemming from gender stereotypes. These findings chime with earlier research by Yale University. Researchers looked at this hypothesis. Scientists have a superior ability to root out gender bias in their labs because they're trained to rigorously reject subjective criteria. In the experiment, scientists were tasked with reviewing identically qualified job applications for male and female students. Both male and female scientists favoured the male applicants. They were more likely to hire him, ranked him as more competent, were more willing to give him mentoring and were willing to offer him a $4,000 higher salary than the woman. Now, scientists are, of course, trained to be scrupulously objective in their work, but this training doesn't make them immune to unconscious gender bias that shows up in all sectors of work and society. At just 14 years of age, Alicia has already experienced gender bias. Here she shares her story. in middle school and grade eight, I was really fascinated by technology, but it always felt something that was really distant to me that I couldn't, you know, get my hands on. And I think, like, you know, part of it is partially the whole gender gap with technology and STEM. Even as kids, I think, you know, generations ago, we would think that STEM and technology was something that only guys could do. But I think even this generation, stereotypes are still present. When I was in grade eight, I led my robotics team. It was a team of all boys. And I was, you know, the captain of my team. I was the girl lead. And one of the boys actually came up to me and he said to me, he's like, Alicia, why are you even, you know, pursuing or why are you even trying to code? Why are you trying to learn programming when all you're ever going to be is a housewife? And that to me was something really new to me because I didn't expect to hear that. After that, I was kind of heartbroken for a couple of days. But after that, I told myself that I wanted to challenge that. And I wanted to, you know, take a stand for that. And I wanted to prove it to people that, you know, girls can do more than just their baking club and the regular cooking club at school. They can do so much more. And from there onwards, I wanted to actually use technology. I wanted to leverage it. Artificial intelligence is already being used to help automate manual and repetitive tasks, and soon companies will use it to help make human decisions. AI will not only create new jobs in STEM, but it will also change how current jobs are undertaken. To manage the change, companies will have to provide workers with continual training and development, and schools will have to help kids learn about STEM and how to teach themselves as the field will continually change. Here, Alicia shares how she's using AI. I think right now, AI and artificial intelligence is something that really fascinates me. And, you know, I got into it and I was really interested, not just with the technology and what where we're at today. You know, right now we're using it for things like fraud detection. But I think there's also the huge opportunity of using and leveraging artificial intelligence to solve, as I said, some of the world's biggest problems. And specifically mental health is something that was always important to me. As a youth, I think mental health and mental illnesses is something I witness on the daily. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm stressed out. You know, I've had friends who suffer through mental illnesses. It's so common. And, you know, the way I see it, I'm like, you know, 
youth and especially my generation, we might just be 10% of today, but we are 100% of tomorrow. And if we don't give youth the opportunity and resources to support their mental health and mental illnesses, then how do we, you know, expect them to be the future change makers and future leaders? That's when I knew I had to do something about it. I actually had a classmate in my school who suicided 13 minutes after he tweeted about feeling lonely. And that to me was something, you know, really took a toll on me. But I asked the question, you know, what if someone were to see that tweet he tweeted? And what if someone were to see that message? Maybe, you know, someone could have offered him some help. Maybe he could have still been alive if someone were to take action. That's when I knew I really wanted to leverage the power of technology, especially with mental health. We're always talking about how social media is a problem, talking about, you know, social media leads to mental health issues, leads to mental illness. But there's also an opportunity there, you know, the opportunity to leverage technology for good. I think instead of complaining about all the bad, we can actually use technology for the good aspect of it, which is why I built a model. And with my work with the lab at MIT, I'm the youngest researcher there at the AI lab. I'm working towards detecting suicidal and mental illness ideation in text, in Twitter, in social media posts. And I think that it's not where we want it to be. There's definitely ethical implications, but it's a a start. And at the end of the day, I think that's what really matters because we're moving the dial forward towards supporting people with mental illness. My mission is not to save 100 million lives because I think saving one life is just enough. You know, saving one person because I think each person has the opportunity to do so much. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported a 30% increase in deaths by suicide in the United States between the years 2000 and 2016, with rates increasing across all age groups. The National Institute of Mental Health has warned that suicide is a major public health concern and is a leading cause of death in young people aged 10 to 34, coming second only to unintentional injury. Research also reveals that rates of emergency room visits for adolescents and children experiencing suicidal thoughts have risen over past years. Here, Alicia shares why tackling the mental health challenges that young people face is so important to her and the positive role she believes technology can play. I think we don't even realize that we are the actual ones who are going to be making the change. And we have to take action now. I think that we also wait for the future, but the resources are with us here. You know, technology being a huge one, technology being a huge tool to specifically solve some of the world's biggest problems. I think we can eradicate diseases. We can cure cancer. I think all the problems that we've been trying to solve for so many years, I think technology really is the answer. But what it really comes down to is that we have all these tools, but we don't have enough people working on solving these problems. I think we don't have enough smart people taking that ambition and taking their passion to solve these problems. And that's what we need, because I think that, you know, alone, you can really only go so far, but we need more people coming together to solve more bigger problems. And for me, you know, it's always been seeing realities of people and having that passion. I think it's something maybe passed down from my family because, you know, my grandpa, he always used to, you know, collect shirts and collect old things and give it to people in impoverished areas in India. And I think that for my family, it's always been, you know, it's not just about us, but it's about what the good we can do in the world as well. And, you know, especially with the Hope Sisters, my nonprofit, we're really on a mission to get more people to start giving back. I think it's one thing, you know, if me and my sister do it alone and me and my sister, you know, we give out a hundred million bags of food to everyone suffering through poverty. But 
I think it's so much more special and so much more important when others along in your mission as well. So for me, it's always been those experiences. And for me, it's always been just, you know, learning from other people. I built my model based on just detecting suicidal ideation in text. What it really came down to me was I didn't just want to leave this as a passion project. I didn't just want to leave it, you know, as something I did on the side and leaving it alone. I think that the opportunity this model has is huge. I got my model up to a 92% accuracy, which seriously means that my model can detect, you know, 92% of the times if there's someone who could be suicidal. And I think with technology, we underestimate the power of it because it can do so much. It's incredible and fascinates me the potential and what technology can do at this day and age. And what I'm doing right now is, so I've been fortunate enough to work with a group at Microsoft to actually implement my model. And we're starting off with educational institutes and and then even moving on further from that to employees and specifically veterinarians. What was really surprising to me was that one in six veterinarians actually suicide. To me, that was something you've never heard before. And we're going to be working alongside, you know, in the veterinarian hospitals to give these resources and also detect suicidal ideation and mental illness ideation to support these veterinarians. And specifically at school, you know, for my young generation, it's so common. And I think that at the end of the day, it's really just about providing the support that sometimes youth are, you know, not comfortable with sharing that are asking, I need the support. It's really giving resources and giving help to people who, you know, who sometimes have trouble verbalizing that they need it. Because I think, you know, it's common to me, it happens, but also with other people as well. What the main thing is, it really is moving the dial towards supporting people with mental illness and helping people, you know, who are struggling, helping people who, you know, I think physical health is something that we talked about a lot in the day, but now it's mental health. And I think that when we talk about a pandemic and a crisis, I think the next one is going to be mental health. We need the support. We do. And especially as youth, I think, you know, we have guidance counselors, we have, you know, resources online, but they don't really get us anywhere. They don't. And so for my model, you know, what I've been working on, especially with MIT, with a bunch of researchers there, is to really build a model that can detect ideation, you know, through looking at text, through analyzing people's behavior online. In addition to her work with MIT, Alicia runs a nonprofit called Hope Sisters. The charity spreads hope by writing a thousand plus hope cards filled with positive messages to seniors in long-term care and retirement homes. The foundation provides bags of items that children in foster care need, filled with things like toys, blankets, and snacks. Here, Alicia shares more about her nonprofit charity. The Hope Sisters, it really started with the mission of spreading hope. And what started for us was back when, you know, just COVID begun and the pandemic started, me and my sister, we used to volunteer regularly at the hospital. And on the last day, because of COVID restrictions, we were really close with the senior there. So we wrote her a card and it was just a simple card with a positive message that took two minutes out of our day and we gave it to her. And, you know, what we didn't realize was that when we gave it to her, she had the brightest smile on her face. And it really told me and my sister, you know, the impact something small can have on someone's life. Something super small, it took us two minutes out of our day, really made her whole day. And I think that for us, that's when we knew, you know, we wanted to get more people along the journey of spreading hope. And we want to give spread hope to people who need it the most. And that was our first project. So over two nights, we wrote over 2,000 cards to give to seniors and we gave them out. And then after that, we started Project Hope Bags, which was really just bags 
bags with essential items, toys, books, and a bunch of items to give to children in care. And we gave them to over 4,000 kids, which is almost half the kids in foster care in Canada. So, you know, that is something that has been really monumental. But I think that what's so heartwarming to, you know, me and my sister is when we hear back from them, we talk about people who are living unfortunate lives, people who are living in Africa, and people who are living, you know, around the world. But I think even in local places, especially in my city of Toronto, which people would never imagine, there's still people who need that help. We gave those bags and just hearing from those kids and you especially hearing from my friend, you know, it really meant the world to them to get those items. And even though it's something so simple that we would expect, you know, everyone to have, they really didn't. And from there onwards, you know, for the holiday season, we had a parade, we held it in Toronto, where we got a hundred cars, we got a Santa Claus, really just to spread some holiday cheer to everyone because everyone needs help sometimes. And that's really what we started to do. And now we're on a mission to just spread hope and get more people, you know, involved in spreading hope. We're working on a policy paper right now to implement, you know, I think the real way to really make change is through policy. So that's what we're doing. And I think, you know, over the next few years, we really see us growing into getting more people involved in the mission of spreading hope. And we call them hope spreaders. So people who, you know, who come along together, come on and support, you know, the journey of supporting other people through spreading hope. Given that too many women working in STEM end up leaving the industry because of barriers to advancement or for some even hostile working conditions like experiencing isolation or harassment, we need organisations to put a laser sharp focus on their workplace cultures. Here, Alicia shares thoughts on what she'll be looking for from her potential future employers. I think what it really comes down to is having people to encourage you and having companies, especially in corporations, support, especially youth. My friends are working on incredible projects to seriously solve some of the world's biggest problems, but we don't have, you know, people, you know, I think youth can only make so much change, but we really need company and corporations driving that change, empowering more youth and getting more youth involved in their mission to support them and to actually elevate what they're doing. I was fortunate, you know, to work with Microsoft to actually get my project going. But if I weren't, you know, maybe this would have just been a passion project on the side. And, you know, maybe there would be still be people dying every single day. And I think what it really comes down to is having people, having corporations support and elevate the journeys of youth because, you know, youth really are the future and are the ones who are going to be making the change. I think for me, what I really value is having a really good company culture, a culture where, you know, it's inclusive. But I think that where there's also something I firmly believe in is not just having, you know, one woman at the table, but also, you know, having more than one. I think oftentimes, especially as a young girl, and especially, you know, involved with politics as well, something I'm also really interested in, we often think, you know, there's only ever one female or one woman to represent us, one woman to represent us at the board, or one woman to represent us at the higher levels. But I think that we need more than one, just one woman, you know, we need more females being represented. And I think for me, what I really value is really having a culture and a space where I'm able to thrive. Finally, Alicia shares her advice for following your passion and overcoming challenges. I think the biggest thing is 
you know, especially with me, I've had challenges where I just feel like giving up all the time. But what I've really learned is, you know, it's not just about showing up once. It's not really just about, you know, showing up and talking about what you're doing and, you know, telling people we need this change because it's not going to happen just one time. It's really about showing up, you know, 20 times, 50 times until they start listening, until people start listening. I think, you know, this world is something where you just need people to start listening. And that comes from showing up and not giving up and having that resilience to not take no for an answer. I think that, you know, that's something I've really learned that people are going to stop you, especially as a young person. I've always told, you know, Alicia, you can't really do anything. You know, you're only 14. You don't really have the knowledge in this space. But I think really challenging that and proving people wrong, because that's not the truth. That's not what it is at all. And I think when you just show up, you know, 20 times, 50 times until people start listening, that's when change happens. It's all about, you know, getting more people involved in what you're doing and getting more people involved in your mission. I think that's really when the change happens. That's when you become a change maker, you know? And also the other thing, what I realized is I've had a lot of people to support me and I've had a lot of, you know, encouraging people in my way. But I think that, you know, while that's awesome, I think that if you don't, you know, believe in yourself, that will hold you back. You know, I'm at times where I feel like giving up and I'm at times where I thought, you know, I wasn't good enough to do this. But, you know, that's when you lose, when you don't believe in yourself. You know, that's when you lose, when you're not there to support yourself, because you have to really believe and have that passion towards what you're doing. And I think showing up and not taking no for an answer, you can really make change and really impact a billion people. Many organisations are working really hard to do more to attract people like Alicia into technology roles. But attracting top female talent is just one piece of the jigsaw. The real prize is building a culture where those talented individuals are motivated to stay, able to succeed and supported to progress. But to achieve that, organisations must actively and proactively value the skills, knowledge and attributes that women bring to the table once they're in the door. According to a Forbes report, once women enter the technology field, they leave at a 45% higher rate than men, which kind of makes sense when you consider the barriers many women encounter on a regular basis. For some, that may be lack of opportunities, isolation or poor management. Others may be discouraged by the persistent gender pay gap or the tumbleweed of missing senior role models or even worn down by experiences of workplace harassment. The daily challenges for women can be many and varied, but though the barriers are diverse, the outcome both for women and business is predictable. Women leave and business loses that talent. Imagine what women like Alicia can achieve in a work environment where they don't face these challenges and where their unique skills, attributes and approaches are valued. If many heads make light work, many different heads pave the way for real success. To successfully face the challenges of the future, businesses will need to create precisely these environments and then protect that culture vigorously and deliberately because it's hard to build, but far too easy to break. With that in mind, this week's fix is to work out what you and your organisation can do every day to harness a variety of perspectives and to genuinely value difference. Before you go, just a quick reminder to check out the 100 Actions for Equality campaign, which provides 100 actions you can take every day to create a more equal working world. Just visit www.100actionsforequality.com. Thank you for tuning into our episode today. 
If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again, and I'll catch you all again next week.